The fact that Jesus stands amongst the candlesticks, which we see from verse 20 are the churches, indicates that he is ready to move out in judgment on the churches first. 1 Peter 4.17 says this, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Here Peter asks a rhetorical question, question, if judgment begins at the house of the Lord, what on earth is going to happen to unbelievers? As we study this book, we'll see the answer to this. However, for believers, this is not judgment in terms of eternal fire and loss of salvation, but judgment of their works, which judgment will take place immediately after the catching away of the church. Jesus' address to the churches is because he wants to bring them into alignment with his eternal plan for them in order that they may receive a reward. They are not going to receive any reward for the things done in the flesh, only that which is done at the bidding of the Spirit. And they therefore need to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Verse 19, and John receives his instructions. Write three things. What you've seen, the things which are, and those to come. He's seen the glorified man, Jesus. Identifying himself, Jesus shows himself as the Eternal One, the first and the last. I was dead, and behold, I am alive. John has seen seven lampstands and seven stars, which are explained to him as the seven churches, and the seven angels, which are messengers to the churches. And this completes the things which he saw, and we move on to the things which are the seven churches. So the first division of the book is completed with verse 20 of chapter 1. Chapters 2 and chapter 3 comprise the second major division of the book. This division is the things which are and it's a description of the church age contained in seven short letters. And now Jesus begins to tell John the state of the churches and what he wants John to write to them and them to hear, the things which are. This is what's known as the visible church, the local body or the local church, and it can contain both unbelievers and believers. Whereas the invisible church is only believers who have gone to be with the Lord already. The visible church, on the other hand, includes all professing believers, whether they really believe or not. The theory that the seven churches of Revelation uh, 2 and 3 are prophetic, that they represent seven consecutive periods in church history, seems to have been suggested around AD 303. This belief is still held today, but at the same time, the seven churches are also historical and representative of the church as a whole. Thus we see seven congregations. 
seven congregations who were historically existent at the time John wrote, seven congregations representing the entire church through the seven types of local churches which shall exist throughout the dispensation of the church, and as prefiguring or representing seven aspects of the professing church which would rise into prominence before Christ's second coming. And the seven periods are generally divided as follows. Ephesus, which was known as the Apostolic Evangelical Church, AD 30 to AD 100. Smyrna, the persecuted Iron Curtain Church, AD 100 to 313. Pergamum, the inner city, state church, AD 313 to 600. Thyatira, papal, suburban church, AD 600 to 1517. Sardis, the reformed liberal church, AD 1517 to 1648. Philadelphia, the Missionary Church, AD 1648 to 1900. Laodicea, the Apostate Church, 1900 to the present day. Although most of these phases of church history are now concluded, their influence still carries over from stage to stage and some trends are still quite obviously in existence even in our own day. Let's go into Revelation 2 now, verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things, says he, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labour, your patience, and you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you have persevered and have patience and have laboured for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. This... Uh, Nicolaitans. One view has it that it was a strong ecclesiastical hierarchy ruling over the laity, but there are several views and no one seems to have come to any conclusion about exactly what this Nicolaitans or Nicolaitans um, doctrine and what they did actually was. So it's a bit vague there I'm afraid. So Ephesus Ephesus means desired one, 
and this church was begun by Paul and you can see that in Acts 18, 19 and 20. And it was located in the wicked city given over to the worship of the goddess Artemis. Paul's effective ministry began seriously to hurt the traffic in magic and images leading to an uproar in the huge Ephesian amphitheatre. Religion was a prominent feature of life in Ephesus. The temple of Artemis, or Diana, her Roman name, ranked as one of the seven wonders in the ancient world. As the daughter of Zeus, Artemis was variously known as the moon goddess, the goddess of hunting, and the patroness of young girls. And the Ephesians took pride in their beautiful temple, which was supported by scores of stone columns. Wikipedia, you know the free online encyclopedia, says of present-day Ephesus, the site is large. Ephesus contains the largest collection of Roman ruins east of the Mediterranean. Only an estimated 15% has been ex excavated. The ruins that are visible give some idea of the city's original splendour and the names associated with the ruins are evocative of its former life. This is the only church where reference is made to apostles, hence it is called the Apostolic or Early Church, and it covered the time from Pentecost AD 30 to AD 100. It was the most desirable of all the churches and was characterised by fervent evangelism. There were a large percentage of Jews in the congregation. The letter to the Ephesians can be divided into three sections. It begins with a commendation, moves into a condemnation and closes with a command. Commendation. I know your deeds. He commends them for their hard work. Literally in the Greek it's toiling to the point of exhaustion. The Ephesian Christians were hard working in their service determined in their commitment and orthodox in their doctrine. They'd resisted the false teaching which was causing corruption in other churches and they hated the work of the Nicolaitans. Yet in spite of these fine qualities something was missing. They had forgotten their first love. So the condemnation was you have forsaken your first love. They'd allowed their love for Jesus to cool in the midst of all their activity. They'd fallen away, and despite the efficiency of their service, Jesus is not pleased. In his eyes, they were backslidden. Ephesus had heart trouble. It had forsaken its first love, walked away, left it. I just don't love him anymore. Honeymoon love had eroded into routine married life. The thrilling flush of our newfound conversion experience must be guarded by submission to the Holy Spirit at all times. Many Christians' lives consist of a first love experience which then develops into a routine walk of having forsaken their first love. The Ephesians love had chilled in this way and this describes so many people in churches today who are caught up in their activity for Jesus and have lost that inner glow of love for him and have become caught up in the works. So he counsels them, 
Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent. Change your minds. Come back to me. Return to intimacy with me, your coming bridegroom, or I will remove your lampstand. I'll put your light out. I'll remove your witness from this place. Do not think that Ichabod, the glory has departed, cannot be written over present-day churches, because it can. Selwyn Hughes, in his book on the letters to the churches, says this, I will never forget standing with a group of Christians on the site of what was once the city of Ephesus. Even though it's now in ruins, it's still a breathtaking spectacle. Yet there's no sign of a Christian church anywhere in the vicinity. Did Christ's warning take effect there? I believe it did. The Ephesus church failed to obey his command and in consequence its light was extinguished. A church has no light without love. It can maintain a building and support a minister but if there's no love there, there can be no light. The lampstand has been removed. Chilling words. So their challenge, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. The next church to get Jesus' attention is the church at Smyrna. That's Revelation 2, 8 to 11. Reading from verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things, says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you're rich, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Smyrna, this is the persecuted church. AD 100 to 313. Commendation, I know your affliction and your poverty. Condemnation, none. Counsel, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Challenge, he who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Jesus starts each church's message by saying, I know. And in the case of Smyrna, he says, I know your affliction and poverty, but you're rich. This church period is probably the greatest time of persecution the Church of Christ has ever known. The more persecuted they were, the more they overcome. The one condemning characteristic of the apostolic church before them, that of having their first lost their first love, they did not lose theirs. The dates AD 100 to 312. If love is the first characteristic that Jesus seeks in his church, 
Suffering is the second. Smyrna means myrrh. This was the persecuted and afflicted church. It wasn't easy to be a Christian in Smyrna. The city had acquired a reputation for being loyal to the Roman Empire and as a result a temple had been erected to the Emperor Tiberius. Citizens were required to sprinkle incense on the fire that burned before his bust and acknowledge him, Caesar, to be Lord. Christians who would not conform were outlawed and persecuted. The pastor was Polycarp, a student of John. Polycarp was hounded and finally burnt at the stake in AD 156 for not denying Jesus. He said, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Apparently the wind became contrary and the flames blew away from him and would not burn him. So a soldier's sword finally ended his life. Geographically the city lay about 60 miles north of Ephesus. At the time this letter was given Smyrna was the pride of Asia. It was one of the principal cities vying with Ephesus and Pergamum for first place. It's the only city of all the seven churches which is still thriving and it's now called Ismia. This church experienced persecution and suffering to, agree that none, to a degree that none of the other churches did. The church at Smyrna was pulled apart by pressure, poverty and persecution. The believers in Smyrna were an afflicted church afflicted by false teachers who claimed to be Jews but really were not. Any church that preaches a gospel other than the gospel of Jesus Christ is a synagogue of Satan regardless of what it's called. The second death is that state when people who've died in unbelief are resurrected and cast alive into an internal state of separation from God in the lake of fire. This second death never need cause the child of God to fear for it will have no power over them. The faithful believers at Smyrna are here promised a crown of life laid up for those who have suffered and given their lives for the sake of the gospel. Their assurance is this, Jesus knows everything and one day he will meet them personally at the doors of eternity to present them with a crown of life. Moving on, Revelation 2, 12 to 17. And to the angel of the church at Pergamum write, These things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where, Jesus, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. 
Repent, or else I'll come to you quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Pergamum The Indulged Church AD 313-600 to 600. Commendation, I know where you live, where Satan had his throne, yet you remain true to my name. Condemnation, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Counsel, repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Challenge, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. This is where Satan had his throne. The city of Pergamum was deeply entrenched in the worship of the god As Aslepius, the god of healing. I'll spell that for you. A-S-C-L-E-P-I-U-S. Asclepius. This was a church which slid into compromise and the toleration of evil. Worldly standards had crept in. So much of the world is in the church and so many of the church are in the world that there is no difference between the two. The Pergamon period of history evolved into an era when Christianity was introduced by force by Constantine, the Christian emperor. When Diocletian, the last persecuting emperor of that period, failed to stamp out the church, Constantine came into power. Christianity, said Constantine, was to be the state religion. Regiments of soldiers were baptised at Spearpoint. As the self-styled protector of the faith, Constantine issued an edict of toleration for Christianity and showered many favours on the Christian church. The government provided money for the operation of the church and many pagan temples were taken over by Christians. To please the emperor, these leaders adopted customs that were parallel to pagan practices. One compromise invariably leads to another and what seemed at the start to be a great blessing ended up a great curse. During the succeeding three centuries of this period, many anti-Christian practices of pagan origin were adopted, which robbed the church of its fire and evangelistic fervour. The influence of paganism on the church increased over the years, step by step. The church began to shroud itself in mystery and ritualism that had a strong resemblance to Babylonian mysticism. The Chaldean Tau, T-A-U, which was the elevation of a large T on the end of a pole, was changed to the sign of a cross. From AD 312 onwards, the church became more Roman and less Christian in its practices. The Roman Catholic Church today is hard put 
to trace its roots and ancestry beyond AD 312. Until that time the church was an independent collection of local churches working together whenever possible but not dominated by central authority. The name Pergamum literally means marriage or elevation. As the church became married to governmental authority and elevated to a place of acceptance it declined in spiritual blessing and power. Pergamon was also the church where Satan has his throne. In the commendation they are commended for not denying the faith and Antipas, who was martyred in 92 AD, is singled out as being one of their faithful members. His name means against all and it may be that he stood firm against all satanic worship. This church is said to be situated where Satan has his throne and indeed it was this city that the serpent son Asclepius was worshipped. Wikipedia says this under a photograph of a Greek statue of Asclepius who holds a staff with a large serpent coiled around it. The ancient Greek symbol today associated with medicine worldwide. The rod of Asclepius with its encoiled serpent. The World Health Organization, the Royal Society of Medicine, the American Medical and Osteopathic Associations, the British and Australian Medical Associations are some of the bodies that incorporate it in their insignia. The city lay about 60 miles north of Smyrna and at the time these letters were written it was known to be a strong centre of paganism and idolatry. Two of the main deities honoured there, amongst hundreds of others, were Dionysus and Asclepius, the gods of healing. The historian R. H. Charles describes Pergamum as the Lourdes of the province of Asia and the seat of a famous school of medicine. One writer says that in Pergamum it was not so much Christ who was evident, but Antichrist. It would appear that whilst many in the church were holding on to the truth of the gospel, others were drifting and entertaining false teachers. Jesus describes it as the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin and the teachings of the Nicolaitans. It could be that the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans was one and the same. The story of Balaam is recorded in Numbers 22:24 and it tells of how Balaam, a prophet of God, was enticed by Balak, king of Moab, to curse the tribes of Israel who were about to cross the Jordan and enter the Promised Land. However, every time Balaam opened his mouth to curse Israel, God moved him to speak words of blessing. Totally frustrated by this, Balaam suggested to Balak that he should arrange for the Moabite women to seduce the men of Israel by inviting them to take part in immoral and idolatrous feasts, knowing full well that this would bring God's anger against them. What Balaam was to Israel is what the Nicolaitans were to the church in Pergamum. We aren't under law, we're under grace. This teaches that sin is no longer a problem. 
It's only a problem for the unbeliever. We're free to do what we like because the more we sin, the more God can show grace. God does not condemn sin in the sinner in order to condone it in the saint. They were teaching license instead of liberty and Jesus says, repent. The source of their error was not merely human but demonic. Revelation 2, 18 to 29 And to the angel in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has the eyes of flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and beguile my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. But to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, and who have not known the depths of Satan, as they call them, I will put you on you no other burden. But hold fast to what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nation. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the potter's vessels shall be broken to pieces, as I have also received from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thyatira Thyatira comes from two words, meaning continual and sacrifice. This church, AD 600 to 1517, continues where Pergamum left off and introduces the heresy that Jesus' work wasn't finished on the cross, therefore the sacrifice is continual and Jesus is still on the cross. Jesus comes walking among the candlesticks to this particular church with eyes of flame and feet like fine brass. He always selected a description of himself that spoke directly to the condition of the church he was addressing. To Thyatira he comes with eyes of blazing fire and feet of brass. Despite its appearance there was sin in the church at Thyatira. They needed to see him as the one whose eyes burned with the fire of righteous indignation and whose feet brought judgment. Brass in scripture always denotes judgment. Jesus comes to this church with judgment. Condemnation I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Condemnation You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Counsel Only hold on to what you have until I come. Challenge to him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. 
Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give him the morning star. Beneath the healthy surface was a cesspool. Lounging seductively behind this facade of piety was that woman Jezebel. Jezebel was the epitome of immorality and idolatry. The programme of merging paganism with Christianity, begun under the Church of Pergamum, increased. The light that Jesus had entrusted to his church all but flickered out during what was called the Dark Ages and was not rekindled until the days of the Reformation. Kissing the Pope's feet, worshipping images and relics, fasting on Fridays and during Lent, transubstantiation, adoration of the wafer, purgatory, the infallibility of the Pope, Mary declared the mother of the church, were some of the changes and additions made. Thyatira comes from two words, meaning sacrifice and continual, and this introduces the central heresy that has produced other false doctrines. That is, the Church of Rome denies the finished work of Christ, but believes in continuing sacrifice that produces such things as sacraments for the dead and praying for the dead. All of these were borrowed from Mystery Babylon, the mother of all pagan customs and idolatry, none of which is taught in the New Testament. Jesus gave this adulterous woman time to repent, but she refused. Not everyone was involved with her, and Jesus gives some marvellous promises to those who hold on to their faith until he returns. Revelation 3, 1-6 And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. Be watchful, and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot his name out from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Sardis the reformed liberal church, the dead church. Sardis means those escaping. Dates AD 1517 to 1648. The church in Sardis had gained a reputation throughout the whole of Asia Minor for being a progressive and lively centre of Christian witness. But outward appearances are deceptive and the truth was that the church was nothing more than a spiritual graveyard. It had a name for being alive, but in actual fact it was dead. They had an endless round of spiritual activity, but like the church in Ephesus, in the sight of the Lord, they were beggared, bankrupt and broken. 
They broke away from the Roman Catholic Church, but they too became state churches, and we see the Anglican Church in England, the Lutheran Church in Germany, and the Presbyterian Church in Scotland as examples. What corrupted Pergamum also corrupted Sardis. Jesus describes them as dead. There is no spiritual life because there is no personal faith and relationship with Jesus. So a great part of this type of church is composed of unbelievers. They have sound creeds, they honour him with their lips, but their hearts are indeed far from him. Those escaping, however, are the relatively few who are born again and have washed their robes and will be clothed in white garments, which equal salvation. Mixed bunch, these. So the commendation... I know your deeds, you have a reputation of being alive. Condemnation, but you're dead. I've not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Counsel, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Remember therefore what you've received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you challenge. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I'll never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and his angels. Sardis means escaping ones or those who come out. This name, together with the Lord's condemnation of this church, provides a perfect description of the Reformation churches. The Protestant Reformation developed as a result of the continued emphasis by the Church of Rome on pagan doctrines rather than adherence to scriptural principles. The basic emphasis of the Reformation churches originally was Martin Luther's watchword, the righteous will live by faith, Romans 1.17. They'd recoiled from trying to make salvation the result of works and it sparked a resurgence of interest in studying the scriptures. The tragedy of the Reformation churches that earned for them the condemnation by the Lord of being dead was twofold. One, they became state churches and had a tendency to please the government rather than God. And two, they did not sufficiently change many of the customs and teachings of the Church of Rome. Infant baptism was continued, in spite of the fact there's no scriptural verification for it. Sprinkling was also continued. Ritual and formality, characteristic of pagan forms of worship, are not conducive to genuine worship, for they appeal to the sensuous nature of the human. If people live a, leave a church with a mysterious feeling of worship but haven't been brought face to face with Jesus Christ in a personal way, they've been worshipping in a dead church. This church appeared alive but was dead. The Lord is never impressed by the beauty of a well-kept mausoleum, knowing that inside are the bones of a dead man. Sardis was wealthy but degenerate. Twice the city had been lost because the leadership and the citizenry were too lazy to defend themselves from their enemies. Like the city, this church had won a good reputation at one time and the members thought they'd arrived. 
They were content in the beautiful building they directed on the corner of self-satisfaction and complacency streets. Falls of death rested on its laurels, died from neglect, lax moral standards and a failure to recognise its own spiritual condition. They had a form of godliness but denied the power. 2 Timothy 3, 5 What should we do if we feel we're members of a dead or dying church? Be submissive to the Holy Spirit. If he says stay, stay. If he says go, go. There are lofty promises for those who are called upon to stay where they are. Revelation 3, 4 and 5 Revelation 3, 7 to 13 And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door. No one can shut it. For you have little strength, you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I'll make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I've loved you. Because you've kept my command to persevere, I'll also keep you from the hour of trial, which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes out of heaven from God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Philadelphia, A.D. 1648 to 1900, the church Christ loves. Commendation, I know your works. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know you have little strength, yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Condemnation, none. Counsel, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Challenge. To him who overcomes I'll make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The name Philadelphia means brotherly love. Jesus selected that church to describe the kind of church age that was initiated around the year uh, 1750 and will continue into the tribulation. Just as Sardis came out of Thyatira, so Philadelphia came out of Sardis. Philadelphia was marked by vitality of life. In this church age, God worked in a thrilling way that produced revivals in Europe and the British Isles, 
which in turn produced what is known today as the modern missionary movement. We all want to belong to this one. No condemnation, right doctrine and right living going in hand in hand. Doctrine without love is legalism. Where love is present without doctrine, it's humanism. God promised to open doors for this loving church, to give it an opportunity to reach out to a lost world. It's the Holy Spirit who prepares the hearts of men to receive the good news, not our plans, tracts, crusades or feeble witnessing. Jesus reminds the church at Philadelphia that the doors of opportunity are completely under his control. If he wants them open, no one can shut them. If he wants them shut, no one can open them. Only he has the key. They were commended because they couldn't do it. They had little strength. Except for some churches in America, the Philadelphia church is characterized by small congregations which according to human standards are weak. This of course is real strength. They kept his word. This church not only believed the word of God but obeyed it. William Ramsey in his book Letters to the Seven Churches of Asia claims that when the city was founded in the second century BC it was designed to be a strategic centre for the spreading of the Greek language throughout the whole of Asia. It was, he says, a missionary city from the beginning. Whatever the city may have been for Greek culture, it was now to be a springboard for the propagation of the Christian faith. Reformation churches past and present believe the word of God but are not characterised by obedience to it. The Church of Philadelphia, a fitting contrast to this pattern, is characterised by obedience to his word. Promises to the church, vindication, he will do it, and preservation. Since you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is to come upon the whole world to test those who live in the earth. The world has never known a universal period of tribulation. This passage is an obvious reference to the tribulation period of seven years that we'll cover later on. This promise, however, is to the Church of Philadelphia, brotherly love, that she will be raptured, caught up, before that tribulation begins. Revelation three, fourteen to 22 And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, I know your works, that you're neither hot or cold. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eyesalve that you may see. As many as I love I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. 
Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I'll grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcome, and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Laodicea, A.D. 1900 to the present day. The apostate or unsaved church, the lukewarm church. The name means people ruling. This church is ruled by men, not God. This church is led by the people, not by the Holy Spirit. And as such, Jesus says, he will spew them out. Jesus' description of himself is the faithful and true witness, throwing into relief that the church that is neither of these. All of the previous churches had a word of commendation. This church has none. What an indictment. There is nothing commendable about it. Probably mostly all are religious unbelievers. They're not the truly saved. The hot are the truly saved. The cold are those who are not believers and do not claim to be believers. The lukewarm are those who claim to be believers but are not truly regenerated. This is the apostate church. Apostasy can be defined as the departure from the truth that one professed to have. It doesn't mean that the person actually possessed the truth. In fact, apostates seldom do possess the truth. Rather, it is a departure from a truth they profess to have because of an affiliation with a particular church. For instance, a minister of an Anglican, Baptist or Methodist church is professing, by virtue of his position, to believe the doctrines of his or her particular denomination. But the apostate denies these doctrines and has departed from the truth that he professed to have. This is characteristic of the visible church which is not made up totally of believers and the 20th and 21st centuries as predicted uh, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-3. Now brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or word or letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. The term falling away is apostasy. Commendation for this church? None. Condemnation? So, because you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and I don't need a thing, but you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. Counsel? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear, so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes, so you can see. 
to him who overcomes I'll give the right to sit with me on my throne. The final church mentioned in Revelation is the lukewarm church of Laodicea, the church which will be in existence when Christ returns for his true bride. These lukewarm believers will be left behind unless they bought gold refined in the fire so they can become rich. In other words, they repent. The church which received the last letter from the postman at Patmos was outwardly impressive. It had all the trappings of wealth, but something was missing. Well-known theologian John Stott wrote, The Laodicean church was a half-hearted church. Perhaps none of the seven letters is more appropriate to the 21st century church than this. It describes vividly the respectable, sentimental, nominal, skin-deep religiosity which is so widespread among us today. Our Christianity is flabby and anemic. We appear to have taken a lukewarm bath of religion. The Laodicean church today would be at the forefront of the gay rights and feminist movements and be leaders in the ordination of women and the feminising of the deity, the God is female lobby. The message of Jesus is clear, have nothing to do with them. The challenge of Jesus to Laodicea, like his six other challenges, is to overcome or become born again believers. The challenge is simply a promise to share his throne as he shares his Father's throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The message of Jesus to Laodicea indicates that as this age draws to a close, apostasy, deadness and indifference will increase. Sounds like a case of the Emperor has no clothes. No wonder our Lord asked of this age, However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's Luke 18, 8. Although most of these phases of church history are now concluded, nevertheless their influence still carries over from stage to stage and some trends are still in, is in existence, even in our own day. May we indeed hear and take to heart what the Spirit is saying to the churches in this day. Tomorrow we'll have a look at what happens from chapter 4 onwards. God bless you.